0: Hello, I'm Dominic Green. I'm Life and Arts Editor for Spectator USA, and I'm inviting you to join me on our weekly Life and Arts podcast. Each week we'll be running the gamut of American cultural life, talking to writers, actors, musicians, philosophers, and even the odd politician. So join me. Search for Spectator
1: USA on the iTunes store. Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined by Neil McGregor, the former head of the British Museum and director of the National Gallery before that, and author of A History of the World in 100 Objects. His new book is Living with the Gods on Beliefs and Peoples. Neil, welcome you've taken on a very big subject and you've made it even bigger actually because you say in your introduction you say well you know this is about religion and yet there's something that you almost sort of rule into religion you know systems of ideology and nationalism and so forth so i mean what led you to start on this enormous piece of territory and to make it that much wider
0: the starting point was a discussion at the british museum about the questions the British Museum should be addressing. The idea of the museum being to enable the citizen to understand better the world as it is now. And we've done a number of exhibitions on themes that seem to us important for that, like Iran or Germany.
1: That's a slightly odd, odd way of characterising museum. We, we normally think of it as something that's teaching us to understand the world as it was then.
0: The British Museum was, <laughs> since you ask, the British Museum is unusual in that regard, that it's set up by Parliament in the middle of the 18th century in order to allow the British to understand the world that they are encountering through global trade. And you would normally expect to do that through university. But Oxford and Cambridge had vetoed a university in London. So the British Museum is a kind of open university for the people who are encountering the first modern globalised world so that they can understand it. And you only understand now through the past. One of the questions that seems to us very important to address is why is religion again a major political force in the world. I think most people a generation ago would have assumed that religion was going to retreat into a more private realm. But in fact, quite the reverse and that seemed to us a really important thing to ask why is it that religion has this power to mobilize people in a political dimension and has that always been the case and of course the collections are you thinking
1: here particularly about the sort of clash of cultures the sort of islamist terror and so forth bring that or you know the american christian right i mean what
0: wherever you look in the world you see the phenomenon that communities states choose to identify themselves through religious allegiance as much or more than political allegiance. Obviously, with the collapse of the states in the Middle East, more and more communities there define themselves primarily as a religious community. That's the identity. But from the Philippines to Nigeria, people are being attacked, killed, on the basis primarily, or allegedly, of religious identity. And if you look something like Russia, until 1989, a state atheist country now proudly, loudly, energetically orthodox. Yes. Putin proclaiming Russian identity as being orthodox identity. It's everywhere in the world. And I think Western Europeans, above all, find this very hard. We were all brought up to believe that religion was essentially an attempt to explain the world, to explain why lightning or earthquakes happened and that science had superseded that and that after that it was simply a private matter. I think what we've lost sight of is that religion is also, and perhaps even more so, more than just being about explaining the world, it's about giving a meaning to existence. And the the nation-state, particularly in times of war, articulated that meaning.
1: So you're talking a bit about kind of communal practice in a way, you're yes. about religion practice rather than a exactly. so, so what we're or, yeah.
0: talking about in the book is absolutely not the, the, the validity or otherwise of a set of beliefs, but the way in which belief is articulated into a sense of belonging and how you manage that, how you organise the rituals, the practices, so that the community of belonging is established.
1: And the way you've approached this is, as in your previous book, through objects. I mean, what are the advantages of that? And I suppose, what are the limitations of that?
0: The great advantage is that it lets you treat on an equal basis the great monotheisms with texts like, obviously, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, the other great religions like Hinduism, Buddhism, that don't have one sacred text. And, perhaps most important of all, those religious practices... Those communities where the whole landscape is part of a spiritual, religious world, <laughs> binding people, place across time.
1: The thing of Australian Aboriginals. Yes.
0: You can look at all these practices and how they work out in society through objects much more easily. Objects let us look at a world that is otherwise very hard to enter, the, and particularly with those worlds like the what one might call the animated landscape worlds, like the Australian Aboriginal worlds. We don't have words for their ideas
1: in English. Yes, you talk early on about how difficult it is to articulate some of those exactly. concepts. Exactly,
0: yeah. so the, the, the advantage of the object, the thing, is that it lets you move from the, the text, and the text is usually managed by the clergy, <laughs> yes, to the things, which are usually made by the people, And to be used in rituals, and that's what we've looked at.
1: And how do you organise a book like this? I mean, because you jump from sort of you know one religion to another, one part of the world to another, one time frame to another. I mean, does does one research a book like this by, as you had the privilege to simply kind of wandering around the British Museum after dark, thinking, oh that one looks interesting, and you know, is it a sort of perambulation? (laughs) Well, part of it
0: was exactly that: walking around the museum with colleagues. Not so much after dark as in the light of colleagues' knowledge and talking about the ideas the different questions about religion we could ask and address through the things we were very keen to get some kind of spread across time from the first things that we can regard as religious experience evidence of religious experience. yes
1: so is this, i mean i'd like to talk a little bit about that because you do begin with this one absolutely remarkable object this lion man which was found in germany i think wasn't yes is it
0: it's found in south germany And it's a small sculpture carved out of mammoth ivory. And it shows the body of a man with the head of a lion. And it was made about 40,000 years ago, so in the Ice Age in South Germany. As far as we know to date, it's the oldest three-dimensional object we have that represents something that can't exist. It's the physical making of an idea, or the making visible and graspable, literally graspable of an idea. And that seems a good place to start because it's about an idea that goes beyond the confines of just humanity. It's about humanity in a world of Dangerous animals, huge animals, fierce animals, but about the human role in that. And somewhere in that idea is, of course, what we're all looking for. What is our place in this world?
1: And one of the sort of remarkable things about that, you, I mean, the experts you're able to draw have figured out how long it would have taken to make, and they've been able to establish that the cave, you know, didn't have lots of the ordinary middens you'd expect from habitation. So it was kind of a church. That seems to be the
0: case. and. We know that this would have taken many hundreds of hours to make using stone tools and mammoth ivory. The first question, of course, is why would you allow someone to spend so long acquiring the skill to make it? This is clearly not the first sculpture this person made. And why would they devote so much time to it? What is the advantage to society of having this kind of object? And the space, as you say... It's not a normal cave. It appears not to be a cave where people lived. But in that cave were found the sculpture, ornaments like animals' teeth used as necklaces, we think, and antlers, so objects that have no practical use. And the space appears not to have been a place of living. So it looks to have been a church in in, in that sense, a place where people gather to think about something beyond themselves, but only for that purpose.
1: But as you say, in the in, in the Ice Age... You know, your life expectancy was not high, and you know, people were busy. It, it, it was very easy to die and spending lots and lots of hours making a carving. I mean, what's the suggestion? You know, do you have a theory or is there a scientific idea as to the extent to which religion is adaptive? I mean, at what point does it become useful for the community to I have someone who's doing that?
0: The, the, histori- the historians of deep history would argue, I think, that societies that have communities that have a shared belief about themselves as a community that goes beyond the individual are stronger than ones without that. If you can articulate an idea that the group will go on, the individuals will come and go, but the group will go on, and there's a narrative that carries the community through time, that community will be stronger than others and more likely to make it. So you could, I think, argue that communities with patterns of belief and strengthen notions of belonging and what the individual therefore needs to contribute to the community so that it goes on those communities are more likely to survive and therefore the belief patterns are more likely to continue
1: and other than that idea of something you know larger than yourself or something that provides an account of the community in time what are the commonalities that you found you know in your in your hop through religions i mean is there a sort of irreducible core of what you could call religious or religion and human behaviour? I
0: think the notion that the individual is fulfilled in the context of the community is one of the central things, and how that is articulated, so that the community includes everybody. There are many different kinds of rituals to ensure that everybody is in the embrace of the community. And that's one thing. The second thing is, I think, a notion of the past and the future being present now and the obligation to act and to think in the context of what the past has left us and with responsibility for the future. To to my mind, the great example there is Peru, the Peruvian mummies. Before the the Spanish conquest, the Peruvians mummified the the bodies, particularly of their leaders, and these bodies are brought out to join discussions to decide the politics of the future. Like Jeremy Bentham. It's just, well, it's it's like having Gladstone and Disraeli suddenly wheeled out around the cabinet table. But what that does is it insists that everything you're doing is to be seen in a long dimension of time. And that's another thing. But religion is always about time as well as about the community. And I think that's why, in both cases, Western Europe now finds this difficult. (laughs) Because society that has, in the last couple of generations, focused very strongly, with wonderful results, on the right of the individual to fulfil themselves as an individual, which has led to a whole expansion of rights, which has been liberation for, 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 for millions, that the, current, the other side of that is that the the view of the individual being fulfilled in the community has declined. And fulfilling yourself as an individual is not about the future of the community. It's shrunk the timescale. And I think that's why we in Western Europe, in the Western general, find the power of religion difficult really to grasp.
1: Yes, there's a, there's a wonderfully eloquent object in it that you describe the Vanuatans tying knots into the hair of young men. Can you talk a bit about that? It's a lovely yes. quote, this is our university.
0: One of the key points of choosing objects, as I said, is that you have a glimpse of traditions, of belief and of practice that don't have texts, which are entirely oral, which is obviously what most of the world, from most of history, has had. And in Vanuatu, the system of training the boy in his obligations for the future in informing him about the stories, the narrative of the community, which he needs to know, are performed by the elders. And as they tell him the stories, they plait his hair, rather like Rastafarian dreadlocks. And then they examine him and they go on plaiting. So over several years, the boy's hair will be steadily plaited. And then when he knows enough, that will be cut off. And in the British Museum, we have one of these bundles of plaited hair which was cut off in the 1830s. And when people from Vanuatu came to look at it in the British Museum, they were thrilled to see it here and pointed out and said, this is our university. (laughs) This is where we train people in their obligations. And this is, if you like, this is the diploma to show that they they know enough to take their place in the community.
1: Sure. I mean, what's... Very striking, because the way in which certain rituals or images or metaphors or ideas seem to you know run through a number of different religions. I mean, you begin with fire and water, though you don't then go on to do earth and air, which is (laughs) you know that's peculiar Aristotelian quartet that gets wound into T. S. Eliot. But
0: I think that's because fire and water both purify, and it's uh, air. Air is also very hard to ritualize. <laughs> you can't either do without it or extinguish it. Or, you know, and earth is just always with us. But the, it's not surprising that fire everywhere is seen as very close to the divine because it has that remarkable power, of course, to... First of all, you, you need fire uh, in order to live. In the the Not just for cooking and heat, but the hearth would be the focus of the community. So it does Vesta's flame in Rome becomes the symbol of the whole community. But what is so remarkable about it is this great, powerful thing will actually die unless the humans look after it. So yeah, sort of there's ves- an obligation. Flame,
1: but you also there's the Parsis as and well. And the Parsis there? do so the same.
0: And the Parsis have what, to my mind, is one of the most brilliant bits of social theology. As I know, that the most sacred kind of flame for the Parsis is constructed of flames taken from the hearths of every different part of the community. So from the priest, the doctor, the soldier, the baker, whatever. And then you add to those different flames, the flame from a cremation pyre so that the dead are present, but you also add fire from lightning so that heaven is there too. And when all these flames are combined, you don't worship the flame, but you feel that in that purity of the flame, where the whole of community, whole of the community is present, you are nearer to the divine than in any other place. And that idea that the divine is present only when the whole community is there, in some purified sense, is a wonderfully poetic notion of a community aspiring to be something, but above all, aspiring to be all embracing and then for the Parsees to be truthful and do good acts. Um, and th- those symbols are, and that's a very. There's a lovely collision pattern, with modernity in the book, where they, they.
1: It must be the first time a sacred flame has flown on an Air India flight. Yes. They the, <laughs> the, the,
0: the, because the, the flame has to be revered, it can only be tended by Parsi priests. And they wear masks so they don't pollute it by spitting or sneezing. And when every Parsi community has to have... This. So when the, the Parsis moved to Aden with the British Empire and they had their temple and their fire, when the Parsis had to leave Aden, when the British left, the question was, how do you take the flame back? And fortunately, Tatar family at that stage were very closely connected to where India, Tatar, a great Parsi family... And they provided a special plane where the flame could be taken in the plane, tended in the proper way, and flown from Aden to India. <laughs> that idea of the flame being, in so many ways, the symbol of the, the community, the, the sacred aspect of what a community is and can be. It's, it's one of the most powerful images, I think, that any community has invented to, 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 to articulate its aspirations, its hopes.
1: What, what i mean there's so much you know so, so many different aspects of the different religions you touch on but did you find a sort of divide i mean i i was struck for instance that you know you talk a little about death and afterlife and the ideas and there are some religions obviously that particularly the sort of abrahamic religions that say that you know the promise of eternal life is life after death and then you know in hinduism the promise is quite the opposite it's of escape from sansara of a, an escape and oblivion and, you know, a, a, an escape from the cycle of rebirth. I mean, is, is that a sort of, you know, are you, are you one type of religion or the other? I mean, does it divide the world? I'm not sure that
0: it does divide the world. What they're all about is, of course, escaping from the cycle of bad behaviour. I mean, recognising that bad behaviour has consequences for the society and for the individual. And how that's articulated obviously varies, but I think the message is essentially the same. <laughs> there are consequences of bad behavior and how that's the narrative constructed to, to convey that meaning varies. But I think that's a constant. And how you live with the people of the past is also part of that. I mean, in China, the way the ancestors are still very much for several generations they go on being part of the family and then at a certain stage their portrait can be rolled up and put away
1: so interesting i think it's the chinese ancestor portraits that you say that they i hadn't known this, that they they Try and produce a sort of type specimen of the face, so that it's not smiling or not frowning. So it's it's sort of out of time. It's a kind of yes,
0: because it has to be permanently there. It's it's no longer subject to the changes of light or mood or time. But it has to be like enough so that the ancestor will recognise themselves, <laughs> and know that they are the ones being venerated.
1: Now, you, you make a very good case for the value of religious practice as a kind of means of binding human communities. But you know, a lot of people would object that you know, they're also means of social control, of reinforcing patriarchal structures, of controlling women's bodies. I mean, how do you balance those two sides of it?
0: What I was trying to do in the book was talk about why religion commands the kind of loyalty and power, willingly given, <laughs> that it does in that communal sense. There is, of course, in that, if you're part of the community and part of a system, there are great constraints. And indeed, one of the chapters of the book is about birth, particularly childbirth, and what that means for the society's view of the body of the woman and who controls the body of the woman and the huge problems of patriarchal structures, particularly in the Abrahamic religions, and what that means for the status of women. That's quite clearly central. And the same is true of the... Role of religion, when co-opted by the state to oppress and control and to tyrannize, those are I hope very clear in the book.
1: But well, there are uh, certain live rails you are kind of aware of stepping around or over a little more carefully. Uh, there's,
0: there's, I, because what the real challenge I think for us is uh, living in the West is how to understand why so many people find in these narratives the great hope. Not just the confirmation of their identity and their value in the community, but a hope for the future. And much of the view of religion in Western Europe has been so shaped by the Enlightenment criticisms of the perversion of the Christian church to support state power, either Roman Catholicism or state Protestantism, both shackled to state power to make real oppression possible, that it's, we've, I think, forgotten that there is also a positive aspect of belonging and hope that where there isn't a state or against the state, Jews against the state, this is a very powerful
1: structure. In a book made of objects, are you not at a disadvantage when dealing with those religions which are against graven images or icons or, you know, these religious traditions which don't like to make objects? Yes,
0: but you can get... There's some way you can get round that. (laughs) I mean, clearly the the great challenge uh, might might seem to be Judaism uh, or Islam. But of course Islam has taken the word as the thing that can be made beautiful and calligraphy has become an artistic tradition just as elaborate and just as satisfying visually as uh, as figurative art. Judaism is more complicated because so much of it is about arguing and the word but there are of course objects that you need in order to be able to read. And the yad is called the little silver hand, which Jews use to read the Torah. In That's the object we chose, because the source of community is, of course, reading the Torah together. And using the yad to read the Torah, it is that which kept the Jewish community together in the Diaspora after the destruction of the Temple. So it brings us back to exactly the same thing that how has this group found a way within its belief structure to reinforce the community? And the training of the young boys for centuries, now also girls, to read the Torah, to take their part in the community, is another ritual of belonging and of continuity across time. One of the most striking things happened in the book when we were doing some of the interviews with young Jewish children, the boys and girls from the, uh, who had been trained to read for their bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah, was their sense that they were becoming part of a community that stretched back for many, many centuries and would continue. So this, you can, I think you can do this with objects, even in those religions which are supremely Verbal, if you like, like like that. Like the Jewish
1: tradition. Can I ask? Did you grow up yourself in a religious tradition? I mean, did you?
0: Yeah, I grew up in a conventional Church of Scotland world. So in that sense, very like the Jewish one. It was about the word, no images at all, and the rituals. The, the service was reading the word, having the word expounded in a sermon, and singing the word in hymns and psalms. So it was a very, very word-based...
1: And did you have you kept your faith? I mean, do you, do you come to this as a believer or do you find...
0: I mean, belief is something I really struggle with and I don't... I find it difficult to articulate any belief. What I have kept from that is that I think, like most Western Europeans, the language we have in which to talk about questions about the meaning of life, the obligations of the individual, sacrifice, what. Suffering can mean for the community or for the individual. The only language we have for that is essentially one that comes from the Abrahamic religions.
1: Is there any community that does without religion or without a, a substitute religion? If you
0: you would need to, to ask sociologists. I think I think the answer is no. And it's the that communities have always had a narrative of what they are. If we take religion to be a narrative of belonging across time, I think. Every society has that, and the two obvious examples of states, communities that tried to abolish it formally: the French Revolution, and the Russian Revolution, both of which moved to state religions, which were about something else. In both cases, I mean, in France, the nation became the religion.
1: Yes, they even tried to abolish the seven-day week, which was extraordinary, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> ill-fated, and, yes. uh,
0: and the renaming the the months and the days so you get rid of every trace of religion. But of course, what emerged was a different kind of religion, a different narrative of the whole community, in this case, the nation, going across time. And France still has a very strong national narrative. Russia, the same. The attempt to to abolish the church completely, Stalin didn't Quite abolish it, but played it down very much. Very interestingly, in 1941, when the Germans invaded, Stalin reopened the churches because that and the Great Patriotic War itself is the Great Patriotic War. Exactly, and the narrative of building towards a communist future is in many ways a religious narrative that the community has an ideal of what it ought to be. And individuals will sacrifice to achieve that ideal for the future. It's a language which is transposed entirely from a religious one and is in a sense, in in the sense that I've been using the word, it's a religious narrative.
1: And that idea of communal remembrance that I was struck by your writing that even as we've actually forgotten the war more, you know, we get further and further away from the Second World War and the First World War, you know, the, the celebrations of remembrance... Have got greater. I mean, as if, I mean, I think you suggest there might be a sort of nostalgia for nostalgia. What, how do you account for that? It's,
0: it is one of the very striking phenomena in Britain, the resurgence in the last 25 years, 30 years, of the 11th of November, which was in steady decline in the 60s and 70s. And Again, sociologists will have a view on this, but one of the things it's doing is reaffirming the notion of a community across time. It is a connection with a longer time span. It's a notion of a shared community with the dead.
1: But is there also, do you, do you, do you think there's something in it that that's to do with the idea that we have an idea about what the community was like during wartime and the further we get from it, I the think that's, more we I th- want to reassert it? I think
0: that's very likely. That in that memory of wartime, in the the, the, the clichéd phrase of you know the Dunkirk spirit or the Blitz spirit, is the sense of a community functioning as a community where everybody is part of an agreed effort and. There is clearly a great nostalgia for that in Britain. People are drawn to that idea. And it's clear, I think, from the language used around the 11th of November every year, that has an enormous appeal. The The idea of a, of a moment when everybody worked together as a community. That we were then, if you like, the ideal community.
1: And, and as a sort of corollary to that, do you see the sort of general resurgence of religion that was the starting point of your book as being a sort of hegelian backlash against i don't i the don't history of secularism i don't
0: i think britain is rather unusual in looking back in that way in its remembrance but i think in gen- no i think what is what it's about is rather an assertion that narr- that communities need a narrative that articulates where the society is going and what kind of society it wants to be and the political narrative of that has faltered in the West, indeed across the world, in in the last 50 years. Clearly the communist narrative has broken down in political terms. The general social communal narrative of Europe in the years after the war has faltered. People want a narrative that explains what they are, what they will become, and what's expected of them. And I don't think it's a Hegelian backlash. I think it's an articulation of the fact that communities need this and are looking for it. And I think we shouldn't be surprised that if communities can't find it in the political order, as is clearly the case in so much of the Middle East, they will look for it in the religious.
1: I think we're out of time. Neil McGregor, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. Um, Very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.